Welcome to the Target Oxbridge podcast, the podcast where we demystify the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and share tips on how to improve your chances of getting into Oxbridge. My name is Naomi Kelman and I am the founder of Target Oxbridge. Target Oxbridge is a programme that has been running since 2012 to help black African and Caribbean students to gain places at Oxford and Cambridge. We've helped over 200 students to gain offers so far and so we've gathered quite a bit of experience over the years. The aim of this podcast is to share the information and top tips that we've gathered with students, parents and teachers, as well as sharing the stories of people who have studied there. For this next series of episodes, we will be focusing on the theme of storytelling, as we believe that sharing our stories is the best way to demystify the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. Today, I am joined by Hashi Mohammed who is a barrister, broadcaster and author. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Naomi. No problem. It's great to have you. And I came across your life story when reading your book, People Like Us, and I just thought it was a story that our listeners would love to hear. And so I was, I was really happy when you said that you would come, come and join us. I thought it would be good just by starting um, by hearing a little bit about your story of when, when you arrived in the UK. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And um, I'm very pleased to talk to you about that. Um, yes, in the book, I talk about how I came to the UK as a, as a nine-year-old unaccompanied child refugee. Uh, my family is originally from Somalia. But I was born in Kenya at a time when the Somali state was in sort of flux and a great deal was going on at the time. And in the early 1990s, when the war broke out and a huge issue was happening in terms of what would happen in the, in the region, what my family would do, how it would affect us, uh, there were a lot of my family members who had to flee and find a new place to basically seek sanctuary. And at the time, in ni- between 1991 and 93, uh, when the war had broken out, my mother, who had given birth to 12 children, if you can believe it, um, you know, had basically very few choices and very few options as a woman who was never formally educated, who never learned how to read and write. And so uh, that was a very, very difficult time. And as a result, some of my siblings ended up in North America, some in Canada, some in in the US. And we ended up here um, right after the death of my father in Kenya as a result of a, a car accident. So our arrival to the UK was both precipitated by war, Uh, death and destruction, but also tragedy. Uh, And that's how I began my life in the United Kingdom. And you you write about that in your book and share that story, but also the journey that you then went on of navigating the education system and and the employment world in the UK, having, having come to the UK in that way. And I thought that the things you touched on along the way in terms of the people who had a big impact on you and helped you get to where you got to, combined with the things that you did yourself and the missions you sort of set yourself off your own accord, combined combined to you having the outcomes that you did. I thought the story you told about Miss Adler was really quite a key one 
in terms of the intervention that she made. Would you mind sharing that for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key things about, obviously, my story at the moment is when we talk about social mobility and we talk about people who have, in inverted commas, made it, it's often the case that we either diminish, underplay, or don't emphasize enough the real part in which other people play in your own successes. And it was really important for me to write a story that did not seek to brush out or or completely erase the people who have had an impact on me. And these people obviously include, you know, family members, siblings, and of course, teachers. And one of those teachers is a woman uh, called Miss Adler, who I talk about in the book. And the story that you're referring to is the story where she had spent a considerable amount of time one particular summer, basically taking us to a, a, a place where we could buy paint and then painting our form class that whole summer. Now, all that she did really was she said, why don't you guys come in over the summer paint this classroom, this will be your form class, this will be the place where you start and end your day, and it will be a a piece of work that you guys can all be proud of. And I reflect on that story as being a real moment in my life where a lot had changed. And a lot had changed in the sense of it was the first time when, as a homeless person who's moving around from one squalor condition to the next, had actually found a place that I could call home a place that I could paint, a place that was a consistent uh, place to keep coming back to, a place where we felt safe, a place that we contributed to as students, as pupils, and as people who were trying to become more active citizens in a new country, in a new beginning, and in a new world. But it was also important in other ways that I didn't obviously appreciate back then, but are now appreciating much, much more given the research that I had to do for the book. And that was in relation to something I discovered uh, a lot of studies done upon to do with the summer learning loss. Now, the summer learning loss is, is this sort of research that shows that very poor kids, kids from deprived backgrounds, kids who don't necessarily have the right support at home, who have parents who might be working and away from home all the time, don't necessarily have people to support them during the summer periods. And it's during that summer period that a lot is lost for a lot of these young people. And it's during that summer period that that they may go astray, that they may end up uh, missing out on developing, that they're not stimulated, that they're not pushed, that they're not given another access to basically opportunities to fill in the gaps during that long summer period. And I reflect upon this, and actually I reflect on how much I consider that period. That's what Miss Adler was thinking about. And and there's no way of proving that, but actually that was the effect that it had on me. And I think that is another example of understanding, appreciating, but crucially acknowledging that you are not an island as a human being. There are many people doing their part or have done their part to bring you where you are. And it's always important to acknowledge them in your own success. I think that's really true. And it's something I try and flag to the students that I work with because 
sometimes there's a sense of, you know, the self-made man or the rags to riches story where somebody's just gone off and done it all by themselves and they make they made it all off their own back. And they of course worked hard, but I think it can give students the sense that they're meant to be able to go it alone and asking for help or taking opportunities that have maybe been crafted for them is almost cheating or, or not quite doing it right. And I think actually acknowledging along the way just how important help is and seeking it out or when it's offered, making sure you make the most of it is actually the key to most people who do go on to be successful. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think that that part of the story isn't told as well or as often enough. Or, and I think that that then one of the key consequence of that is people then misunderstand what it means to be successful. And crucially, they also misunderstand what you need to do in your own life to affect that change to become successful. And I think that is a big factor in the bigger picture that we need to understand more often. And I remember you mentioning at the end of telling the story about the, the painted classroom that it gave you a sense of belonging to a, to a wider society. And that made me think a lot about the conversations that are happening at the moment about the black attainment gap at universities. And whilst people are still figuring out what exactly is behind this gap, what seems to come up over and over again is a sense of belonging and how important it is for people to have that when they arrive at a new institution, if they are going to be able to excel in all of the things that they've gone off to achieve. A sense of belonging is really hard to overstate as being a critical component for anyone who is trying to find their place in society. And the reason why that's important is because you have to believe that the studies that you're spending an inordinate amount of time to prepare for, the exams that you're going to sit, the classrooms that you're going to share with these pupils, the teachers who you are going to be sitting in front of and hopefully inspired by, the school gates that you have to walk through five days a week every day for many, many years mean something, amount to something, will result in something. And that cannot really happen in a vacuum. That cannot happen in a way that just simply, you know, is, is plucked out of thin air. That has to happen in a, in a society where that person believes that they have something to invest and that that society has something to invest in them. And so whilst the black attainment gap issue cannot be definitively, I don't think anyway, cannot be definitively put down to a, a specific issue or a specific cause, it's much, much more likely that it's a multitude of issues and multitude of causes but the issue of belonging, belief in self, confidence, and actually investing in the society in which you live in, to my mind, has to rank right up there as the one of the big factors. Yes, definitely. It's definitely a complex issue. But I think over the years, whilst I've been working on access to Oxbridge specifically, I've seen that as the number of black students at Oxbridge has grown over the years they've been able to form within the African Caribbean society initially a sense of belonging and place and community and then have got much more involved in things much more broadly across the university in terms of the access work and the different things going on and I think they've as a group now been able to feel much more 
as if they sort of belong and have a space and are, are being listened to as well and are contributing. Yeah. And it's been great to see, and I'm hoping that it will contribute towards a closing of that gap over over the years. Yeah, but I, can I pose a challenge to you though, Naomi? Because obviously you've been doing this for quite some time now. And obviously you've had amazing success in getting so many young black students or diverse students into uh, places like Oxbridge. But as you might recall from the book, I reflect upon how dangerous it is that we obsess over the need for everyone to get to Oxbridge. And I wonder what your your thoughts were, because for me, I, 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 I struggle with this because obviously I went to Oxford for my master's and maybe we can touch upon that my own experiences in a moment. But I find that the obsession with Oxbridge and the conversations that we have about Oxbridge and how many people get into Oxbridge is doing two big fundamentally flawed things. The first is it skews what it means to be successful. It kind of distorts the idea of success and only equates it to, did you get into one of these two universities? When the possibilities of life are endless, and I completely appreciate and understand that going to Oxbridge can be a completely transformative thing for people. And I don't want to take away that from people who want to aspire to that. But I just feel that there's that one element of it being so emphasized that it then skews that and distorts the idea of being successful and then the second thing it does, which I which I also struggle with, is those people who then get there are then faced with an enormous amount of pressure to first fill in a gap between where they've come from and where they find themselves. And then after they've left, they almost have like a, a, a writ over their heads that says, well, now you must then become successful and make loads of money and do all sorts of things. Well, actually, anybody who's leaving Oxbridge in 2020 is going to be faced with the same challenges that so many young people are facing today of finding a job, finding work experience, etc., etc. Actually, the cachet that an Oxbridge degree has is, of course, quite high, but people overstate it in many ways. And so I wondered what your, what kind of expectations are you setting up for these kids and how have you seen that change over the years from your perspective? It's a good question and pe people ask it often because I think a programme focused on Oxbridge might suggest that that's maybe the only thing we're suggesting is worthwhile. And I always say it's a balancing act for the students because they wish to have access to that institution. And I, I think on you know, many different measures they're considered to be some of our best institutions. And so when the programme was set up, it was because we believe everyone should be able to access them if they want to. And if they don't want to, that's perfectly fine. They might have somewhere else they want to go, somewhere else they think is better. Um, but for as long as people want to access it, we believe it should be equal and open to anybody. And when working with the students, it's a balancing act because we want them to push themselves to apply for the very best thing from what they perceive to be best for them. And also to be confident enough to do that and not to rule themselves out of it. But at the same time, to understand that if they don't make it in, it's not the end of the world. And so it's this constant balancing act of saying, please set a precedent in your life which means that if you decide you want something, even if it seems hard, even if it seems out of your reach, even if it seems like it will make you a little bit uncomfortable because the process is challenging, please make sure you aim for that. And if it works out, that's brilliant. And if it doesn't work out, at least you have no regrets about it. And especially with the programme and how much preparation they do, 
that hard work will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. True. And true. But it's about that expectation though, right? And also appreciating that if you've been rejected by an Oxbridge application, it's not the end of the world. But but it's very hard for a 17, 18 year old to fully appreciate that. They might appreciate that when they're in their thirties. But at that age it's quite hard, isn't it? It is, but I see people go for it and it's of any sort of rejection especially if you're a high achiever and you're not used to failing anything the first time you don't succeed feels terrible and it feels like the end of the world but I see students move from being upset about an Oxbridge rejection to being very happy that they're going off to whichever other university they're going off to which is usually another wonderful institution because we've got lots of them in this country Um, and they normally say I'm really happy that I tried I'm really happy that I was on the programme because I learned so much. And what it taught me overall was to always back myself and to have confidence. And this didn't work out, but I've learned a lot and I've still got a great opportunity. And I think it's also about just making sure you never undershoot because if you're not aiming to do your best mm. or to fulfil your potential, if something doesn't work out, you might then not be very happy with where you end up. If you've aimed for the very top thing that you've decided you want to aim for, even if that doesn't work out, your outcome will still be a pretty good one. And so I've seen 17, 80-year-olds manage to come to terms with it pretty quickly and be able to see the benefits of just having pushed themselves. And that's why I always say, I said the precedent we're trying to set is not one about a particular institution. It's one about always aiming for whatever it is you want, whatever you think is the best thing for you and not letting anybody else in the world tell you that you can't have it because of who you are or where you came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really powerful. And I think that's quite healthy. And we must make sure that we maintain that. Definitely, definitely. I don't think it's about a a fixation, but it is about making sure that people know that if they want to try some of these things that are, you know, at at the top of our society, that who they were born to should not be the thing that stops them considering that as an option. And thinking of all of that, you did do your postgrad at Oxford. How did you find that in terms of, you know, moving from North London to Oxford? And Yeah, I mean, what, what I would say, and I think a lot of people listening would, would appreciate this, and, and it goes to the point you just made now about, you know, talking to 17, 18-year-olds. Me at the age of 17 and 18, even if I had the grades for it, which I didn't, would not have been ready for Oxbridge. And that's important because by the time I do get there, after my undergraduate degree and a gap year and a working year, so I had a gap year, four-year degree, one year working. So by the time I'm getting to, to, to Oxbridge, I'm close to, closer to my mid-20s than I am to my teens. I have to say that I was more ready then than I could ever have been. And so what what I mean by that is I think I was much more mature. I was a bit more confident in who I am, both intellectually, personally, mentally, physically. I was a lot more focused about what I wanted out of life. Of course, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I had a much better idea than I ever had at 16, 17, because at 16, 17, I thought I was going to be a footballer, as every young teenage boy's dream, <laughs> of course. 
a delusion rather than a dream. And so for me, the, 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 the arriving at Oxford, on a full scholarship at St. Anthony's College, surrounded by so many international students, I genuinely was mentally more ready and I didn't feel alienated or out of place or in any way didn't deserve to be there. And so in that regard, um, you know, it was a fantastic experience and I loved it and I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, of course, it was only a master's degree and it wasn't there for the full three years, but I still have and maintain you know, long lasting friendships that, that came out of that. And so, you know, it was amazing. And I, I wouldn't have, you know, swapped it for any other experience. And after your time at Oxford, you went on to join the bar and become a barrister, which is also, you know, one of the most competitive and in some ways hard to access professions in our country. How did you find navigating that world? Did you find your time at Oxford helped with that transition? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, I find that, again, it's really interesting how things have worked out for me. If I had gone straight from my undergraduate degree to working and then straight to trying to become a barrister, I don't think things would have worked out, actually. And so I think that that stop at Oxford definitely helped with that transition, partly because I was then even more confident than I than I was when I had arrived, partly because the institutions that are placed at the bar, like, you know, the Honourable Society of Lincoln's Inn, the Middle Temple, they are much closer related to an Oxbridge College than any other institution that you're likely to go through at, for, for an undergraduate degree. So in that sense, actually, you know, it was phenomenally fortuitous, if I can put it that way, that things happened in that order. And I think it definitely made that much of a difference and it definitely made uh, that transition much, much easier. And the statistics speak for themselves because still today, Oxbridge graduates dominate the bar. And that's partly because of the elitism and the snobbery, no, no doubt, but partly because these worlds mirror each other and partly because the kind of training that you get at a place like an Oxbridge College for the intensity the thinking, the the pushing of the intellectual mind very much reflects and is similar to what you might find at the bar in many ways. And so that's why I think that transition was much, much easier for me. And I, th I think in People Like Us, you wrote a bit about when you'd first joined the bar um, and somebody made a comment which sort of assumed you must have passed through a certain type of school. What was your first reaction to that in your mind when, when you were asked that question? Yeah, I mean, by that point, again, by the time I get there and by the time I'm faced with these, what we might call these days, actually, microaggressions, where somebody is sort of saying to you, oh, you know, you sound like you're, you went to a public school or whatever it is, however they might phrase it. What's interesting about that is, is it never really undermined my confidence. It never really, I never really felt, oh gosh, you know, um, do I deserve to be here? Should I be here? Oh my God, et cetera, et cetera. But actually it was perhaps lucky of me, some might say uh, mature of me to have seen that situation for what it was. Like I describe in the book, I saw it for what it was. 
which was essentially a snobbish attempt at placing me within the kind of infrastructure and hierarchy of an individual's class system in their head. For me, that is the way in which that person was trying to figure out who is this guy? Where has he come from? Why does he speak so well? Why does he act in the way that he does? It doesn't simply compute in my head that what he claims to be and where he's come from, I need to tie those things up. And it's important that you are able to see that for what it is, because if you see it for anything else, like, oh my God, do I deserve to be here? Am I, am I a fraud? Blah, blah, blah. Then it kind of can shake you in a way that then doesn't give um, you the opportunity to fulfill your potential. Instead, you are working with and around another individual's determination of who you are and who you should be and who you should become. I think that's good advice because, yes, I think we'd, we'd refer to that as a microaggression definitely these days. And I, I find that students have more of this language and have, have a way of thinking about these things that I know I didn't have when I got to university. So I speak to 16 and 17-year-olds who've already thought this stuff through. And I, I didn't. I, I think they've maybe got access to more literature and, and content you know, via the internet than, than I had. But I think that proliferation of conversation around this sort of challenge or challenging interaction has helped them, I think, to navigate that. But I think that's really good advice for thinking of it because it, still sometimes I get questions like that from people and I, I think your natural reaction is to think, oh, wait, you know, clearly that means I don't fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, absolutely. Not, it, it's, it's not so much that you don't fit. Is it's more you, you, you don't fit in this world according to what's going on in this person's head who's asking you the question. Yeah. It's not that you don't fit. It's just you don't fit his version of what's going on in his head. And that's the biggest challenge that we're facing, I think, especially when we think about the question of social mobility. Because ultimately the lie that we tell ourselves is that social mobility is about being clever, doing the right thing, working hard, passing the exams, passing the interviews, getting to that top table and being competent, right? That's what we tell people. But actually, when you're faced with these questions, that's when you realize where the cracks are in the society. Because these kind of questions tell you, well, actually, it turns out it isn't all about merit. It's actually more about merit and whether or not this person is willing to let me into their club. And that's the challenge for a lot of the youngsters today to try and understand that they need to go in there with the confidence to be able to do the exams and pass and do well. But they also need to be able to step outside of that society and see it for what it is. And so that when these questions come their way, and inevitably they will, they're able to see a bigger picture that then allows themselves to kind of either be outside of that picture or find where they think they should be in that picture. And I like your approach of sort of flipping it, because it's not really a question as to whether or not you fit. It's more a question of how limited is this person's view of the world and how it should be. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You've said it better than I could. You should have edited my book. <laughs> um, and think, speaking of your book, actually, I was wondering, with, with writing it, when you set out to write it, did you have a particular aim in mind when you set out to tell your story and, and, and went on this sort of research? That's a very good question because one of the most frustrating things about writing a book is that people always ask you, who's your target audience? I hate that question. 
I absolutely detest that question because for me, I, I know what I want to write. It's in my head. I want to write a story that can be boiled down to one sentence. What does it take for you to do better than those who came before you based on my own experience and based on the society that I'm around? Simple. Who is the target audience? Well, the target audience is anybody who's got any inclination of curiosity about the world that they live in. <laughs> why, everyone, hopefully. Should I have to like say teachers or parents or um, business people or my family or my friends? Like it's this kind of pigeonholing thing that, that I found it really, really stressful at, at times, but frustrating more than any other time. And so for me, when I was setting out, I was like, do you know, I think I have a really cool story to tell and I'm going to tell it. But I also need to back up that story with some detail, some data, some research. And I think anyone who's got a brain who wakes up in the morning and thinks I'm not happy with the status quo and I need to understand the world around me should be picking this book up. Whether they do is another matter, but that's what I was setting out to do. And I am always heartened, so heartened, when I get letters and messages on social media and various places of people saying, thank you for writing this. Thank you for saying that. I've been feeling that, but I've not been sure how to articulate it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really pleased that it's made that much of an impact to a lot of people, including your students, I hope. Yeah, so we did let them know when, when it was released um, and some some people were lucky enough to win some copies so I think the fact that it's out there I, I think there's been a there's been a rise over the past few years in stories and stories being published from a range of perspectives and tackling the issues that you set out to tackle which I think is is really important in terms of having that literature there and for people to be able to read it of all age groups so I, I think you know a 16 year old could pick it up and and take real inspiration from it and also tips for the future and also people educating and to pick it up and get a sense of, you know, what are the challenges that people face? Definitely. Definitely. And speaking of sort of education, you're a trustee for big education, which looks after, I think it's three schools. In, yeah. In London. And we're about to build a new primary school. Ah, brilliant. And in that role, what have you seen as some of the, the challenges or the things that the schools have needed to overcome to enable that those students, regardless of, you know, their parents and their parents' educational backgrounds or professions? It's a really good question. And it's a particularly pointed question at this time when we mm. see the article about the predicted grades and how so much of a child's destiny now can be so determined by, you know, a particular teacher's prediction of what that person should be getting. Yeah. But, uh, but the biggest challenge for me has been, you know, one of the things I, I struggle with with the education system, and I talk about this in the book, is, is, is how the, the, the whole underlying assumption of the education system is based on the idea that somebody will leave their home, go to school, and that the environment at school and the environment at home will mirror each other. And by that, I mean, you know, that they will get a nurtured home, somebody will follow up their homework, somebody will check in with the teacher, somebody will follow their progress and understand what progress looks like and will fill in the gaps and that child will leave home 
having been kissed and encouraged and given a full belly that morning to go to school and concentrate that whole day and then come back home in the evening. Well, that's not the reality for the vast majority of kids out there. There are so many gaps within society, within our education system, within the sort of parent structures that exist uh, across the country everywhere, because we're ultimately human beings, we're fundamentally flawed. And so for me, one of the big challenges that I, I've been focusing on as a trustee uh, uh, on the big education is how do we as a trustee uh, board find as many ways as possible to plug those holes? How do we find as many ways as possible to try and understand why a child is misbehaving, why a parent isn't as engaged, why a teacher's particular worldview might then impact the way in which that child's predicted grades might go, and so on and so forth. And so that for me has been bringing that to the table with all the other trustees who are incredible and the discussions we've been having on Zoom and elsewhere over this difficult period of time has really brought to the fore the importance of that extension of what is effectively empathy and sympathy without necessarily being too dogmatic or, or, or dare I even say patronising towards those parents. And have you, as a result of that sort of considerate approach, come up with any particular approaches, maybe for this particular period of time or previously, to help students and to level that playing field? Yeah, I mean, we've tried, we've tried uh, various ways of, um, uh, of reaching out to parents. We've tried ways of um, putting together after-school programs. We've tried ways of, um, for example, all the teachers in all of the school now, I've, we've donated copies of the book and they're having a reading club right this month before school sort of goes back formally properly and then I'll be joining them to discuss the themes. So we're hoping that if we inform the parents, uh, the teachers better, then they can help the parents and so on and so forth. There is no foolproof way of doing these things. There is no one way of doing these things. And there is no sort of perfect answer. So it's a combination. And we're going to try and figure out the best way to, to make it work. And I was thinking as I was reflecting on, on your book, you mentioned at one point the importance of young people identifying what they can control. And as students have entered into this, this term of education, in a world where very few of us feel that we're very much in control of you know, what's coming up even next month, let alone in the next few months, I thought that was really good advice. And it's similar advice that I've been trying to give to students now, because they don't know what's going to be happening in December, perhaps, but they maybe can know what's, what they're going to be doing tomorrow or next week, at least in some realms of their lives. Where did that advice come from? Is that something that you came across yourself when navigating life or, or did you pick it up from somewhere? Good question. I genuinely can't remember where that advice has come from. But I remember thinking to myself, you waste so much energy thinking about all the things that you simply cannot control. You waste so much energy in life obsessing over issues that are simply beyond the realms of anything that you can conceivably deal with in your own lifetime. And so if you just simply concentrate on that which you can control, that which is within your powers, and really focus on executing that in the most 
succinct, comprehensive way, I believe that everything else will fall will follow. I really do. And that's something that has stood me in good stead for a long, long time, and I hope will continue in the future. But it's hard for a lot of people to do that because people are naturally thinking, well, what about this and what about that and what about this? But actually, if they really focus and understand that they can't control those things, I believe you're much more likely to have a more fruitful, a more happy and a more prosperous life without losing your mind, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's right, especially in times like these. But I think in general, especially when you're, when you're younger, you don't have complete autonomy because there are still other powers that be in your life. But there are some things that you can exercise control over. And I think if you can identify what they are and pursue your goals in those specific realms, then you, then you can have, as you say, a less, a less stressful time of it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. The number of times people obsess over things that they can't control and the stresses and the strains and the mental issues that then that causes, it's just simply not worth it. And again, I appreciate to all those people listening that this is easier said than done. So I don't belittle the idea that, that this is something that you can just simply click your fingers and do it. It isn't. It's hard, but like meditation, you just have to work on it and it will take time. Yeah, it's not so much about not acknowledging at all the things that are difficult and outside of your control. You, of course, have to be aware that they're there. Of but in terms of your energies and where you're going to focus, once you've acknowledged that something's okay, so if you can't do anything about it, you might as well turn your efforts to something that you can. Absolutely. So it's really critical. It's really critical that we make that distinction that you've just made. There is a difference between acknowledging it, seeing it's there, and then making that decision that you can't control it as opposed to simply ignoring that it even exists, because that's different. Ignoring that it completely exists is to put your head in the sand, quite frankly. So that's not what this is about. This is about acknowledging it's there, realizing it's there, and then going, I can't do anything about that, so why am I going to waste any more energies on it? Full stop, move on. Now, that might actually be the tip that you wanted to give, but I do always wrap up by asking my guests for the one tip that they would give their 16-year-old self. Do you have one or have, have we already discussed it? You know, the one tip I do have, and it's not really a tip, it's more a, a, a simple thought, which is if I was talking to my 16-year-old self, I would simply say, everything's going to be all right. That's it. You don't need any advice as a 16-year-old. You don't need to worry so much as a 16-year-old. All you need to know is in the end, it's going to be all right. And that's the advice I'll give to anybody who's listening. Just focus on what you can control and everything else will be all right. Thank you. I think that's a lovely message. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and thank you to our friends at Rare, Clifford Chance, Linklaters and McKinsey for making this podcast possible. We hope that you'll share this episode with friends and family who might find it useful and don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at at Target Oxbridge. If you have a question that you'd like answered in our next series, you can email me at naomi.kelman at targetoxbridge.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.